Welcome. I'm Elia Einhorn, co-curator of Inside Out, a series of podcasts from Pitchfork that explore new perspectives on music, art, and culture. Inside Out is supported by MailChimp. Build your brand. Sell more stuff. Over the course of a four-decade career, Bjork has risen to prominence as one of the most singular and thrilling voices we have. Her work as a songwriter, a singer, and a producer is endlessly provocative and fiercely artistic, mixing the elemental with the synthesized, the personal with the political. Her songs often feel as if they were born from some other landscape, that she is simply reporting back from places the rest of us can't access. In the late 1980s, Bjork began her career singing lead for the Sugar Cubes, an alt-rock band formed in her hometown of Reykjavik, Iceland. In 1993, she released Debut. What followed from there is a discography so rich and varied, it was given its own retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art in 2015. She released her ninth album, Utopia, earlier this fall. This talk was recorded live in Brooklyn at Murmur. Bjork's interviewer is Amanda Petrusic. Thank you all so much for being here uh, tonight, and thank you to Pitchfork and the Murmur Theater for hosting us. I thought maybe we could talk a little bit to start about the idea of utopia, or the idea of a utopia, a perfect place, uh, which is such a, a, a pliable and a hugely personal thing. So for you, what is that world? So when I started working on the album, I knew that would be like the working title. And sometimes that changes. Like, for example, when I did Vespertine, uh, the whole time I did it, it was called Domestica. And actually kind of helped me to try to make this kind of laptop chamber DIY situation. <laughs> but then I kind of found the Vespertine word just the last minute and changed the name. And I was, for some reason, I thought the same thing would happen with this album, but it sort of didn't even though I did like a lot of, lot of research uh, and found like billion words and even made up words and kind of like Volnikura was almost like a homemade word. And, but it was just meant to be called Utopia, this album. And I think both because of the good things about that word, which are kind of obvious, but also the luggage and the sort of baggage that word has, that it kind of like worked, you know? Uh, especially like when uh, I was halfway uh, through uh, making this album, a certain person I'm not gonna give the honor of naming got elected in a certain country. <laughs> and uh, so it kind of, everything just went a bit berserk and it became even more, strangely it mirrors in countries all over the world sort of, you know, that when that happens here. So it's sort of in my country in, in two, even though not so extreme. And then it became even uh, double important or triple to kind of keep this kind of utopian intention. And that it was, and for me, it wasn't like uh, Pollyanna, kind of like everything's incredible and we're all unicorns. But, but it was actually kind of like about this human nature thing that we all have, where we kind of like really crave the dream and we crave this kind of like 
um, this perfection and this kind of thing we want. And then the other thing we, we've got to work with is reality. So for me, it became almost like, how do you make the two work together? And kind of like, and the importance also of having like a recipe or like, and even now is probably the time where, where it's sort of most important to be quite intentional with the light and to say, okay, like the way out of this is we, we got to sit down and make a manifesto and like, okay, let's, and then even if only half of it comes through, like that's even a third, like that's plenty. And also, I mean, some songs are really like uh, utopian and euphoric and truly uh, like um, happy. And then there are other songs where you're kind of pissed off because everything's not perfect. <laughs> and, then, um, and then there are other songs like in between the two. So I think it's just kind of mirroring this, this very human thing in all of us, which is sort of the dream and the real and the gap between the two. <laughs> and it's, it's such an optimistic idea too, uh, which feels really important now, which feels like a really sort of nutritive uh, and, and essential thing now. I mean, invention is such an important word, I think, when, when thinking about or talking about the arc of your career. Uh, you know, this idea of creating something from nothing or of abandoning the old models and, and imagining new ones. Uh, and that feels really instinctive for you in your work. And I, I, so this idea of kind of when the old ways don't make sense anymore, we build something new. Uh, and I wonder if that makes you an optimist or if you think of yourself in that way. Yeah, probably. I mean, I'm oldest of, I've got six siblings, <laughs> three brothers and three sisters. And then I, I was, just, you know, I had a baby really young. So I kind of noticing more and more as I get older that probably had a big impact <laughs> on my character. So even though you see all the dark shit that might possibly happen, you kind of have to go, okay, let's do this. We got it in us. You know, like I have this kind of strange um, sort of trooper, uh, encouraging trooper <laughs> characteristic, which, I mean, it definitely has its good sides and bad sides. But uh, I think, you know, the oldest sibling is, is often the one that has to kind of come up with a plan and say, okay, let's go this way. But I mean, I think also, I don't know, maybe I'm, I always blame Iceland for everything, but <laughs> I, I think, just being like an, coming from a small village and being so far away from everything and kind of like the punk generation was just very DIY and there was nothing happening downtown and it was just like if you want something to happen you just got to do it yourself. So I've, I mean I've talked a lot about it but I think it's sort of like a self-sufficiency in that which I'm not sure if I guess it's some, a form of optimism but it's like you're not gonna wait till somebody else starts your insane drum and bass tech night. You just have to kind of like, just do it yourself. So, um, so I, yeah, I, I think it's, it's maybe more related to that um, sort of element that I think me, me and my mates, especially my generation, kind of have a little bit. 
I mean, I think part of the reason the new record, at least for me, uh, as a listener, feels so good right now is because we're all we're all kind of hungry for that, or I think we we at least in the states sort of want to believe that that's possible. Uh, so thank you for that. Uh, you sing on the record, your past is a loop, turn it off, which is such an important idea, but of course so hard. Uh, and I'm wondering kind of how do we protect against repeating ourselves, either as people in love or as artists? Hmm. I don't know. I Honestly, I've just been sort of doing my best, but uh, I think there's days where it's it's you really crave new things and and you really want to let go of everything. And then a week later you forget <laughs> and fall into your own kind of uh, loops. But um, I think you've got, we all have good days and bad days. So I think, um, hmm, um, yeah, I think I'm, I'm just going to stop there <laughs> for this question. Good, good short answer on that one. There's a developing tension in your work, and I think it's especially palpable uh, on Utopia between uh, the sort of real and the unreal. And I, I think you can hear it on the new record in the, the vocals are really sort of dry and almost kind of beautifully visceral and they're, they're sort of untampered uh, with for the most part. And, and then this kind of fantastical production. Uh, and I was hoping you could talk maybe a little bit about your vocal choices for the record or, or whether that sort of decision to, to kind of leave the vocal and have this really organic uh, kind of hugely human element in there, uh, whether that was purposeful and, and what the purpose might have been. Yeah, I think most of it um, is kind of like I'm clueless and I'm just writing the only songs that I, I can write at any given time. But then there are some things that I'm conscious of and I think there was one thing I was conscious of on this album especially because Vulnikura's narrative was so strong and it was it was really like the story that was being told and then also listening to it a thousand times when we were like mixing it and then I went and did some concerts and it was just like oh my god this person is like <laughs> you know it's like the character of Vulnikura is just really dramatic and really like self-important and very sort of full of self-pity which is like the only way you could sort of tell that sort of a story but then uh, the minute it was over I was like whew, like relieved and then the first song uh, I did was Arise in my senses uh, which is the first song on the album and I think uh, I was just like I could feel myself just kind of lapse into this kind of almost like free of the uh, narrative or narration and just uh, like being like five voices but none of them were like the lead or not the lead you know it's more like fireworks or or um, doing this kind of constellation a melody that was like a constellation in the sky and uh, I think with Vulnikura everything was kind of like uh, very horizontal the melodies and like gravity was pulling it very firmly and it was lying like on the ground and and the strings didn't move much and everybody's just like paralyzed with grief so i think with this one it kind of like just shot to the to the sky but then writing utopia was actually really quick i think sort of because of this it was like uh just an elastic that you pull and just went Roof. and also because me and alejandro were really connected uh, at the end of Vulnikura. 
So we were literally like reading each other's like minds and, and sending each other like billion emails and texts and so really like on a flow. But then we started mixing the album and that became actually a, a big surprise to me that that was a really tough riddle to solve. And I couldn't work out like why. And because usually I, I try to, from my punk days, I always try to be careful not to overmix and just keep like maybe three weeks or like say one or two days per song or something. And, um, and certainly there I, I started mixing with uh, Hepa Katri, who actually is an Egyptian lady who works as a studio here in Brooklyn, a very talented young lady. And we did uh, all of it in Iceland and uh, here and then in Iceland and Alejandro came and we did like a run through the whole thing. And I was really sad because it just wasn't right. And then we had to all go to Japan and do stuff there. And I was like trying to solve this riddle and I just couldn't solve it. And then I came back and I was like, okay, maybe uh, this is not right. You know, we have to do something else. So I found another lady called Marta Saloni from, from Italy uh, who lives in London. And she's like this like wonder child born 1990, like so young and just like a crazy uh, mixing talent, you know. And we kind of started in Iceland and we just set up a little situation there and started from top and mixed everything. And then it was like sunny August, everything's beautiful and we were like on bicycles, probably drinking a little bit too much wine, but that's another story. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then I, I, and then when we'd done like two thirds of the album, I kind of worked out like, oh, what was wrong? In, at least in theory. And I think it is because Marta is like really good with wet, lush, spontaneous, freeze extrovert situations sonically. And Hepa is really good with, with like perfection and uh, control and like that needs like billion hours to tighten the bottom end. She's like genius. And I was like maybe being a bit simplistic me again, <laughs> I decided that, yeah, Hepa is from Egypt and she's making everything sound really dry like the desert. And Marta is from Italy and she's making everything really wet and lush and uh, extrovert like uh, Italians are, no are known to be. And you know, just to bring some stereotypes here and generalize, uh, which I obviously hate. Uh, when it's said about me as being an Icelandic person, but I'm gonna use it on those ladies. But then in the end, it actually ended up being a puzzle between the, the two. So some songs Heba did, some songs Marta did, and actually majority of them was like, Heba did some of it and Marta did some of it. And then we basically did billion versions on every single song and and until it was just right. And uh, it's the most peculiar uh, mixing process I've ever had. And, uh, and I think in theory, I would like to say as a music nerd, that it was because the difference between Utopia 
you know, the dream and the real. Like sometimes things had to be really perfect and really tight and really clean and like, you know, like animation, just like sci-fi novel. And sometimes they just had to be really gritty and just like real and you just woke up and you got out of bed, you know, like rough like that. And sometimes it was a bit of both. And, and, and there was like, we could write a book on <laughs> the, how complicated it was to choose where to put reverbs and where not, because sometimes things had to be really dry, like Egypt. <laughs> and sometimes things had to be really wet and lush, <laughs> um, like uh, Italy. Well, it doesn't, sorry, it doesn't add up. And, um, and then it just was right, you know, but uh, I might, I would probably listen to the album in 10 year time and go like, that's actually not why it was like that. And there's some other inner logic at work, but that, uh, this is my long um, reverb story. <laughs> and, I, and I'll stop there. the best reverb story we've ever heard. <laughs> I'm curious in those moments, I mean, you were talking a little bit about the process of, of uh, mixing the record. In those moments where something instinctively sort of doesn't feel quite right to you, or you think like, I'm close, but I'm not there yet. How, how do you resolve that? I mean, artistically, is it, you know, do you take a lot of walks? Uh, do you go for a swim? Sort of what does that process look like for you of trying to get from I'm close to I'm there? Um, I think it's never like twice the same. I, I mean, I do love that sort of multitasking element of what I do because my uh, boredom tolerance is like minus five. So I think every time I have to like change into somebody else to kind of like get an angle on it, I kind of find it quite exciting. But for example, to become this kind of thorough mixing person, and, and for the mixing to take three months, uh, I just had to change into this other character. And before, like, and my ears got really, 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 really exhausted at one point. Like, like I've never had such exhausted ears. But then you kind of came over the hump, and suddenly my ears were like, I, I should have been hired by NASA or something to like <laughs> listen to aliens. <laughs> because I, my ears were like, um, even though I say so myself, I was rest of my body was wiped out and knackered, but my ears were like really good shape. So you just sort of become whatever the project needs, you know, and it's kind of, I actually quite enjoy the self-sacrificial mm -hmm. element of it. And you just be kind of morph into whatever it takes. And I mean, then obviously I tour and I write and I mean, there's so many other things I do like sitting here with you, for example. So, uh, I, you know, I actually quite like it, how varied it is, you know. So I think it's easy to receive and, and understand Utopia as a kind of companion piece to your last record. Uh, you called that one a heartbreak record, and you jokingly called this one your Tinder record. So I'm wondering, is that a kind of inevitable progression from heartache to sex? <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. I've, I mean, I've definitely um, not been celibate. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> Good for you, ma'am. 
of, but I'm, um, I'm a wonderful halibut now. <laughs> All moist and... No, I'll, I'll stop there. I'll stop there. <laughs> uh, well, Utopia does feel like, I, I think, a return in some ways, or a, a sort of, you know, it, it's a phoenix record, or in a category of, of what I think of as these sort of phoenix records, a sort of grand return from, uh, from some sort of break or, or some sort of pain or ache. I mean, do you consider yourself a romantic? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think in certain ways, Iceland is almost like 19th century. <laughs> like our family values and kind of like, kind of how we, we deal with love. It's kind of like a bit old school. <laughs> it's definitely not 21st century urban. <laughs> but I'm not, uh, neither of uh, these ways are right or wrong. But it's, it's I, I'm definitely a bit like, like old school when it comes to these things, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Uh, so one of my favorite lyrics on, on the new record is when you mention Googling love on feature creatures. Uh, and I think you're, you're kind of talking there about memory and, and the ways in which memory haunts us and, and can be a disorienting force in a life. But, but I also kind of loved the plaintiveness and, and the curiosity of that moment. Uh, because I think once a person has been knocked down by love, you approach the idea in a different way. There is this sense of like, what, what is that? You know, and, and how did it sort of have this effect on me? And I'm, I'm kind of curious what that process was like for you of sort of figuring out, you know, how you previously maybe defined the idea of love and, and, and then the explorations you undertook uh, with the last two records and sort of where you are now. And did you ever actually Google the word love? Because I feel like that's something I would do. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, like, obviously when I called the album Tinder album, that was like some really bad joke on my behalf. I think, obviously, I could uh, never be on Tinder because it would be, uh, you know, people... Yeah. We're, I would never get away. Yeah. I, yeah, if I was, you would have found out by now. Let's put it that way. I think you would have been quite popular. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's very sweet of you. Um, I love you, Peter. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Um, I think for me, it, Tinder in my strange brain, I kind of changed that into more of an attitude or like a, you know, like I would find like an emotional coordinate for what that is. And it's more like a state of mind, you know, when you end one chapter in your life um, or it ends by itself or I mean sometimes the chapters stay longer than you want and sometimes shorter and sometimes just on time but then when the next chapter starts you kind of like go onto this coordinate which is like you're like wide open like you don't know what's going to happen next and you just like oh okay you're like you're kind of like really excited and you kind of like it's like a rush but also, like, maybe moments where it's a little scary or something. And uh, so I thought that in my strange head, that was when I, you know, when I say Tinder. So maybe more accurate way to say it is that I was like, it was like my Tinder to life. <laughs> Instead of, like, um, men. <laughs> like, like, even though that was included, but I... I think that's kind of more what I, what I was trying, like maybe a shortcut to try to describe 
the songs because I think um, maybe also I was a little bit like embarrassed about how tragic <laughs> my last album was. So when uh, the first person who asked me like, oh, so what's your new album like? And usually I'm like, mm, I don't want to say anything. I'm going to jinx things. But this time around, I was actually, it's a Tinder album. Like I just wanted to kind of undo this curse and, and kind of like um, just make sure that I wasn't, it wasn't going to be like another tragic album. <laughs> and people would kind of like know that, you know. I mean, I did talk about this during Vulnikura, and I think my strange kind of feminist ways have gone down odd routes. And what I've noticed a lot is the sort of archetype of 20th century female singer is to do what, you know, Edith Piaf and Maria Callas, you know, that story where they kind of burn and and, and have a tragic ending and then uh, everybody clap their hands and, and, and you know, the Joan of Arc kind of uh, archetype. And I was just like really upset when I was, even when I was a teenager and I would like hear about those stories, I'd be like, that's not true. Like, because you read about Maria Callas and she actually, it wasn't actually that tragic. She had like an amazing life and, the last years before she died, like she did this immaculate concert recordings and everything. Like if if a guy would have done that, that would have been like wow, ten nil for him, you know. And and you never heard like those tragic stories of like Picasso and all his girlfriends that broke his heart, you know. And it's like I I just really wanted to. I was like, okay, I'm gonna once try to go into this archetype, but I hope the world will let me sneak out of it again and continue my story and not just be stuck there forever. So, uh, yeah, so that's my little, um, uh, what do you call it, contribution <laughs> to 20th century female archetype singers. I will say, I think your, you know, your articulations on, of, of heartbreak on that record were really, had a real utility for people. And I, I think we're truly sort of healing, uh, you know, for the folks that heard that record and sort of needed it and metabolized it in such a way. Uh, but, you know, but what you're talking about is really interesting, this sort of idea that, and I think it's a, it's a myth and it's a kind of odious and dangerous myth that pain is always generative, right? And that, and that pain sort of brings about great art. Uh, and that joy brings about sort of sentimental or precious or kind of goofy or middling art. Uh, so what I, another thing I've loved about the new record, and I think another way in which you're sort of overturning some of those narratives is, well, here's, you know, here's joy and rebirth, and this is what it sounds like. And it's, it's just as thrilling, uh, and it's just as exciting. And I, I wonder, as you were sort of you know, going into the writing of this, if you found yourself sort of falling prey to, to some of those mischaracterizations or some of those sort of bad ideas about what pain can do for art or the idea that pain is necessary for art. Was there any part of you that was, I don't know, sort of hesitant or, or, or kind of reluctant in your healing because you thought that might erase something? No, not at all. Um, I, I, I mean, I definitely, maybe I'm based a lot kind of like on my childhood in the way that I walked to school and back uh, every day and it was like a 40 minute walk and it was like in all weathers and uh, that's just what kids did 
<laughs> in Iceland <laughs> back then. And I think I was just kind of euphoric often, just singing my lungs out. So for me, it was this kind of place uh, that I developed probably quite early, like where I comforted myself. And with, that's like home for me. Like that's my emotional home. That's like where I'm at my most natural. And I definitely felt with Vulnukura, like that's not my home. You know, like that's, that's just like some cave with, <laughs> they've torn all the plants out and it's cold and it's horrible. And can I go home now? <laughs> like, like I couldn't wait. You know, I understood that my, my impulse understood that I had to earn it, that I had to like, it wasn't just gonna like be over. <laughs> I had to like do some sort of a something to earn it, but I definitely did not just want to stay there, you know. But I mean, I think also just to counter that, I think making this album, I mean, I actually skipped a lot of songs and there were so many songs and uh, it was like a choice, like which songs would end up there. And part of me was being like, hmm, maybe I should skip the dark songs, you know, and just have, just to have it like a counter thing. And then I was just reading so much about, you know, uh, the ladies. And one thing that I really picked up on, which was like, I don't know why, it just drove me nuts, was um, a certain um, president. That was bragging, caught on tape bragging about treating certain ladies in a certain way. And I was just steam coming out of my ears. I was like, and I couldn't believe he actually got elected, even though there was, that recording existed. Uh, not just that moment, I'm just picking that one particular moment, but I was just like, okay, here I go. I'm, even though I usually I'm not that aware of stuff like that, but I thought, okay, if there's one, because this is the one album I, did consciously tap into the sort of female heartbroken archetype that out of all the sort of archetypes I've tipped into is probably the most kind of like common one, the one that most ladies have experienced sometimes. So I kind of like so many ladies were coming up to me and telling me their stories and, and I was like, oh my God, like this is like way bigger than I even thought. So I thought, okay, I'm feeling much better now, but I'm actually lucky because I have, I'm my own boss and I can, through work, get over things like this. And I actually have money. You know, I'm, I'm like uh, independent uh, financially. I think a lot of ladies, when they have divorces, they, uh, they don't have that, you know, at least my generation. And it's a privilege. So I was like, you know what? I'm not gonna just have a lot of, and be happy songs and pretend, you know, it's no big deal. Divorce and, you know, look at me, you know, I'm fine. Like some sort of Pollyanna situation. I was like, that's not truthful. And, and uh, I think I'm gonna like say, okay, you get over it, but <laughs> there is this kind of tail, dinosaur tail that slings back from the past. Yeah. It's like a grand finale. <laughs> that you have to kind of like tackle yeah. and wrestle and then you can move on. Yeah. So I, I kind of like thought a lot about this and it was actually a really tough 
tough choice. Mm -hmm. And I kind of, I kind of ended up actually doing it for the ladies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think of Utopia as a feminist text. I mean, very much so. Uh, and I can hear your desire to unburden your daughter uh, on the record and to sort of clear a path forward to her. And in many ways, I think the timing of its release is, is so extraordinary and, and so profound uh, in that, at least in the States, we're kind of in the midst of you know, a cultural conversation about this stuff and, and the ways in which, you know, how do we sort of dismantle the institutions that suppress or oppress women? Uh, I mean, were those things on your mind, not just your daughter, but sort of everyone's daughter, uh, women everywhere, when you were writing? Hmm. I mean, obviously all of us didn't know what Me Too would become, you know. Like just yesterday in Iceland, a thousand actresses gave a statement to the media. Uh, with their stories. And a week ago before, uh, like a thousand uh, politicians, female politicians, did the same in Iceland. So it's kind of like having this crazy chain reaction throughout the world. Um, I mean, I kind of thought, okay, we are now maybe having the fifth feminist wave or whatever. I, I'm actually not good with feminist history, where you start counting. <laughs> Uh, but now, like especially last two weeks, it feels like one of the two big ones. And what's so beautiful, I don't know if it's happening here, but in Iceland what's happening is there's all these interviews, like for example was two weeks ago on the radio, like the NPR of Iceland, uh, this sort of serious uh, radio station, uh, with like three guys uh, from three different professions and uh, three different age groups and they were just talking and talking and talking and talking kind of like so I, I really think the next wave is going to be the guys now and it really I mean it started already I think they're going like questioning things and and they're probably even more relieved <laughs> that this has happened than we are you know because they we're kind of stuck in a role that or a costume that didn't fit us and they're even stucker. <laughs> so I, I think really it's like, it's really so phenomenal. I really feel like the next uh, generation of kids is not gonna have to like deal with this, you know? I'm actually that optimistic. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, talking about the future, there, there's kind of a cultural narrative, and again, sort of here in the States at least, about technology being a tool of, or, or perhaps a kind of conduit for a certain amount of isolation or alienation, uh, that it disconnects us from each other. Uh, but I feel like you've embraced technology and, and you know, virtual reality in particular and, and some other forms of technology as a way to kind of actualize or, or make physical some very human ideas. You've sort of taken, again, I think it's, a, it's an optimistic and really beautiful and, and important way to think about technology that runs counter to maybe some of the assumptions we make about it. Uh, and I wonder how you've sort of reconciled all of that. You know, what can technology do for people in terms of bringing us closer to each other? Yeah, I mean, I hope I don't sound repetitive or something because I, I've kind of, it's a question I get asked um, a lot, but it's an important one for sure. I think like technology is just tools and um, and ever since, you know, humankind uh, discovered, you know, the knife or, or, or 
you know, or the, the nuclear bomb, they're like, first it's really, really exciting, and then they have to decide, go through the morality of it, and where to put the soul, you know. And, and that's a really beautiful debate, actually, I think. And how we solve those riddles, every society is actually really curious. And uh, it's a very curious conversation. And like, do we like stop our kids having phones and taking them to bed or don't we? Or, it, you know, like that's a really good question. You know, there is not like a one answer. I think also kids are really different from each other and we are very different. One of my first, I'm not gonna be too specific, but one of my first boyfriends, he was obsessed with books. He was just in his bedroom reading and he wouldn't even, sometimes not even leave his bedroom. And his skin was like see-through. <laughs> Never seen sunlight. And I mean, you, I think we can isolate ourselves with anything. You know, and like, you, you hear those kind of crazy stories like 150 years ago, you know, with authors, they were like getting obsessed with letter writing between countries and they get just possessed with them. And uh, I, th I think it's just human nature, you know, and then they're gonna be like figuring out like what of it is natural, what of it is it, like, you know, how much we text and how much we, we don't text and how much we're on Facebook and, how much we're not on Facebook. I mean, I've got a lot of faith in humankind, you know, I think we're gonna like work it out, you know? But I mean, I'm obviously, I'm most worried the, out of all these things about the environment. And I think, um, again, I'm gonna have to repeat um, what I said before, but I challenge um, the tech companies, the the top 10 tech companies that are like the richest in the world. I think they are partly responsible. It, all their success has come from tech. And I think they, more than even governments, need to put huge money into cleaning the planet and to go green tech. And I'm just gonna keep saying it <laughs> and saying it. But I also think like if we have the money and the infrastructure and the tech know-how to change from iPhone 6 to iPhone 7 in the space of three weeks, <laughs> like the whole world, we can go to skip uh, fossil fuels and do everything by solar and wind energy. So, So I'm just gonna be a stubborn oldest sibling and repeat that mantra till something happens. I mean, it's worth repeating. Yeah. Uh, there are some really beautiful samples of birdsong on, on the record. So I, I did wanna talk to you a little bit about how you take inspiration from the natural world and, and, and sort of how you interact with the landscapes that you inhabit. Um, I, I can't remember a moment when that decision came along. I think one thing that I was probably more influenced by on this album than I have before was uh, my DJ sessions. Uh, because I've, I mean, I've always DJed, but I just didn't call it that. But now, uh, last year or so, I've sort of started doing it publicly or like for strangers. And then I've sort of added in those kind of themes. 
So I had like wind and I had birds and all these kind of themes. So it was kind of hard to know what was the chicken and what was the egg exactly because I was kind of teaching every two months or so and then I would go into the album and then go back. So I've never really done that before because I was like teaching in strange places like the Museum of Technology in Tokyo, which is beautiful. You've got huge speakers and you have to reach the end of the room and how are you going to make flutes sound massive <laughs> and as massive as the most brutal techno song ever made? And how can you make them like work together? So I was kind of like trying all these kind of things um, on my DJ sessions. And I think they influenced a little bit uh, how I assembled the album. And there was definitely a moment like a few months ago where I was like, okay, I can do Utopia in two different ways. I can do it similar to Tuvul Nikura, where I just have the songs very clean with no bird songs or anything and just really like streamlined with silences in between uh, and short or I could do like my DJ sessions where I try to make it into a one big long experience where I have all the birds and that's going to be a little bit more challenging because especially when it comes to stamina uh, but and then I was like mm, left right left right left right left right and then I was like okay I'm gonna do the bird the bird one. And because, I think because of the name Utopia, like you're trying to offer like some sort of a, like a refuge mm -hmm. or, or some sort of a like, I mean, I was really enjoying last year or two, every time I was listening to a lot of podcasts for some reason. And every, every time somebody offered me like an hour break, uh, I was just so happy and grateful. So I, I kind of wanted it to be like a, like an hour break or like a spa or like a, like a, a refuge, you know? So that's kind of, but I think maybe I always like polarity of my albums. Like I think everything has polarity, but I think for example with Vulnukura, it ended up like there was like a string album, which was the sort of opposite to the other, you know? And then I could be more nerdy and introduce these new instruments, and go more thorough into like the sort of polar opposite that Vulnukura was. And I definitely would like to do that to this album too. So I think more and more, uh, the older I get, I kind of like don't look at the version that I release as like the only version. But there's like this other sibling. And sometimes I get a little braver where I actually, even though I don't know exactly what the other version is going to be like, I just release it anyway. And, and just trust that there is this other side to the album. So I think that's probably going to be more like streamlined and cleaner and probably more like sort of virtuoso flute playing, like more filigree. So I think maybe in that sense, it's going to be similar to um, the string album from Volnikura, which because that's where all the string players and the other instrumentalists got, got to be more like do solos and stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
I mean, this is sort of your flute record in a way. I mean, you wrote and arranged for a group of, of 12 Icelandic women. Uh, I mean, the flute is obviously very much about kind of breath and air, and I think it gives the record a really delicate quality and a certain lightness. Uh, and I'm curious about the connection between the flute and the bird song and, and whether that felt like uh, one was an extension of the other and perhaps which one came first. I actually don't remember what came first. Um, I'll just tell them randomly the ones I remember. One of them was that me and Alejandro started sharing our music libraries and I actually played in one of my all-time favorite albums, which is uh, a Venezuelan bird field recordings from the 70s. And I, I've listened so much to it, it actually got scratches that kind of mix with the bird singing. And T had actually never heard it. And I was like, obviously showing off, like, guess what, you know. <laughs> Being like a, um, a music one-upmanship kind of person. And, uh, and then after that, I ended up like uh, recording like Icelandic birds close to my cabin where we worked. So the, the birds on the record are your own field recordings of local birds? Yeah, I mean, it's a combination actually. Of, of our own uh, field recordings. And there's like a, a two couples, they live outside my cabin, um, very romantic. They're called uh, Arctic Loons, L-O-O-N, but uh, in Iceland uh, it's Himbrimi. And uh, they are just always like very romantic, always two, they, they're like couple for life and they do like car shapes with their necks and it's totally mushy. And, um, and they do this beautiful sound, which is in uh, body memory. So to answer your question, I can't remember exactly the order, but then uh, I started to do the flute arrangements and got together the 12 flute players in Iceland, like the girls. We would basically drive to my cabin on Fridays and just hang out there and cook. And we would call them Fessare. Uh, do you have that for Fridays? Fessers. It's kind of like, it's kind of like you, the day you get drunk, you know, it's kind of like, <laughs> I, I don't know what would be the, the uh, same, you know, thing here. It's like, it, Fesser. It's like a bit dodgy, you know. I think we call it TGIS. Okay. <laughs> so we would, we would start calling them like flute fessers. And, and then we go and uh, play all day. And then I would learn because Obviously, I've done string arrangements for a long time. You know, like I started on, you know, a little bit on, uh, you know, debut and then a little bit more on post. And like, it was a very, very slow 20 minute, like a uh, progression. And by the time I did Vulnakura, I did like all of it myself and printed out the scores and wrote all the Italian fancy words on them. And so it was like a really long journey. So starting on flutes was actually a really interesting challenge because uh, there actually don't exist that much music for flutes, like in groups of 12. <laughs> and there's a reason for it, <laughs> I found out. <laughs> so first they just all sounded like uh, a dodgy New Age album. So, <laughs> so I had to kind of like try to find sort of uh, definition and try to make them more refined and more color. So it actually took a long time to work it out. And that was kind of enjoyable. And I kind of feel like 
I haven't peaked yet, like as a, as a flute arranger. <laughs> I think... Uh, <laughs> I mean, I did my best, but um, I mean, I like it myself in the albums that I, I love most, that you have people in some ways, they really like are peaking. <laughs> or even overpeaked, mm -hmm. but then in some ways they're like just innocent learners. And then if you have all three things or four things in the same, uh, I think it's more diversity. So I always try to learn something new on each album. And uh, my flute arrangement was definitely, you know, the, st the student side of me. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> It's such a beautiful way to talk about it uh, because I think you're right that that the sound of someone learning and I think you're a quite expert flute arranger for the record but 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 that sound of sort of someone learning or kind of working something out I, I do think there is a particular beauty to that uh, and, and it's often something I think we sort of shy away from you know the expectation is that by the time you get to the point where you hit record you should know exactly what you're doing and I, I think that the exploration again it's a sort of another part of the record that I think gives it that kind of lightness or that optimism uh, that's really really lovely I mean the flute in particular I think of as a sort of mythical instrument or an instrument that has a lot of root uh, in, in kind of history I'm, I'm sort of curious how those older narratives sort of influence your work I mean, if you think about myth or history or even religion, uh, you know, when you're choosing instruments or sort of figuring out the narratives you want to tell. Yeah, I mean, there was a moment where, um, like, like, I have this beautiful relationship with uh, James Mary, who did this mask. Um, beautiful. <laughs> and uh, his job description now, after eight years, is could fill a phone directory. It's uh, and actually the first thing was I hired him to be a researcher for biophilia because I understood when I started that project that I needed somebody who really was like a high-level university kind of style researcher. And uh, he just finished like I think Oxford and was really um, you know like that sort of a person. And then then we've gone like. 10 different directions, doing like app programming, being like together in a house on the beach in uh, Puerto Rico, we rented for biophilia with like a bucket and an elastic, trying to work out how pendulums work <laughs> and, uh, and buying like a MIDI organ on eBay for like nothing <laughs> and trying to work out how that works and then getting uh, plastered at night. Uh, drinking rum and stealing MIDI files from uh, Destiny's Child, don't tell them. Uh, <laughs> and, and doing like um, uh, organ karaoke. Um, so, so like one would, would Google the lyrics and the other one would like hold the, um, the rum bottle, probably. But uh, so... So, I, yeah, sorry, I'm getting a bit sidetracked here. But, but there's, I'm we've done, <laughs> and then we've done a lot of things, and we also went together. That's one of the reasons why I was really brave with Vulnekura VR, because that was like a, a voyage. I mean, him went on together, and now I've found a fancy title for him, which uh, it was, uh, what was it again? Co 
visual creative director. I think I think we both share that batch, which we have actually not made. I'm kind of scared if we would make it, it would like jinx it or something. <laughs> and then we wouldn't have to say it as often. So, so anyway, uh, now I'm like really like drunk too much coffee and I'm talking too much. So I'll try to reel back into why I said all this. But um, our original connection is that he's a researcher. And I mean that in the most beautiful meaning of that word. And when we had written majority of Utopia, I was like, hmm, there's got to be some link in like flute music and the mythology around that. And actually, I was trying to find a title for the album. I was like, there's got to be some, could you go online and research for me that? And then he spent a couple of days basically, or even more, looking into myths from South America, the Amazon. He found like in Indonesia, we found stuff in Asia, in China. And I read like two books, like incredible books about all the utopias in the world uh, of humankind, like from the beginning. And uh, it was very, very interesting. And we actually found like there was like a common thread in flute stories. And a lot of them are like about the women, funnily enough, and that they are, have had it with violence. <laughs> so they steal the flutes and escape with the kids and go somewhere in some hidden place and start a utopia. But they call it like a different thing, depending on where they live. <laughs> and then there's like different endings to the stories. Sometimes the guys end up finding them and there's some terrible violent thing happens and they get the flutes back and everything goes back to normal. And sometimes something else happens. It's like a beautiful story that was one of my favorite one uh, in China where Utopia is actually, strength translation is Peach Blossom Spring, which I really liked and I actually almost called the album that because it's so beautiful. But um, that's kind of like uh, where that all came from. It's kind of nice when you know you're tapping into some sort of an archetype thing or like some energy and you don't totally understand it but it's not just yours mm -hmm. and it's also it very often had the same colors it was like flutes of peach and they're hairy and it was like fluffy and and that sort of color that light blue sort of um green sort of color and the, because they're sort of opposites and so there was definitely like a little little theme there yeah <laughs> It's such a beautiful idea, I think, uh, you know, joining a chorus of voices or sort of being in conversation with history. Um, it's really lovely. I want to make sure uh, we have some time for questions from the audience. So if someone has a question, please raise your hand. I'm a little nervous, I'll be honest. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, I'm too, so. You are. <laughs> yeah, don't um, worry. I feel, I had a question about your concerts because I feel they're coexisting with your album. So can you talk a little bit about how you go about going on tour and how you form your live performance based on the album? I think I know some of the things. Some of them I don't. I probably will like just figure it out as it goes. But we are all like the flute girls. We're all getting like ready. <laughs> I probably uh, just go with fewer girls. It's, it's trial flutes are a little tricksy actually to play live, except in a couple of songs. So I think we need a denser sound where each voice is like 
stronger and the character doesn't disappear into an ocean of flutes, but it, it's actually kind of cool that they are really different from each other. And uh, the girls, now I, I know them better too. Like this, like one is like the avant-garde one and one is like the romantic French one. And they're all like really different uh, characteristics as flute players. Um, I would like to, because Utopia out of all my albums, I think is probably the one that that's a place. So I would like to make some sort of a place. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly how, how I will do that yet, but um, I'll have to kind of work that out. Right now we're, we're doing uh, gigs uh, at least next spring. So what I'm doing more and more, in, you know, in the 90s you kind of did like the album, the tour, the album, the tour, and it, and, and it was great. But I think when the internet kicked in and kind of broke that up a little bit, I decided to just try to make the most of it and break that pattern up. And, and so right now I'm actually really enjoying, and that's one of the reasons why there was such a short space between the two albums, is that I'm kind of like doing, I, like a month ago I did one, two gigs in Georgia next to Russia, just with an orchestra, and then I, I can write a little bit, and then I can like DJ with uh, like my Björk Digital, the exhibition is still traveling, it's gone to like 18 cities so far. So it's gonna be like a little, like stuff like that, and with a lot of breaks in between, and I'm like allowing myself more. So when I go home now, I, I I'm gonna give myself and the flute girls like a few months to just kind of like gel and to make it sort of into a life life thing, and I like to be quite sort of organic and and that it doesn't only work as sort of the uh, fantasy, <laughs> uh, which sometimes when you edit on Pro Tools for months, it, it, you, you make it really perfect, you know? But it also the hope that it can also work like as a live, like in reality, in, in, like in real time. So yeah, so I'm, I'm sure we will figure out a lot of things on the way that I don't know yet, but that's where we are right now. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Do you find uh, that as a creative force that you spend more of your time simplifying complicated ideas or complicating simple ones? <laughs> wow, that's an amazing question. Hmm. I think the first year or two, I just always like allow myself just to like write the songs and I don't like put pressure on me, like for it to be like cohesive, yeah. What usually happens after like um, a year and a half or something is that I kind of like, I look at it all and I, I try to spot the theme. <laughs> and that's maybe the sort of, um, you know, the Agatha Christie kind of murder mystery side of me that I'm, you're totally right. I sub, that character in me gets sometimes a bit impatient and greedy and wants to like define it quickly. Um, but I have to kind of like put myself that side of me on pause as I try to do it as long as possible. 
But obviously, like, I do interviews like this when all is finished and all is done. And then I drink a lot of coffee and I probably come across as, like, I know it all. Like, I really know exactly what I'm doing when I'm making the album. But I would say 80% of it is really a mystery. Like, like I don't know. So I would, if I had to answer this question in a one way, I would say that the concept or the idea doesn't come till like a year and a half into it. But to be honest, it's probably a bit of both. <laughs> and the instinct part of my character gets sometimes a bit tired of the, the kind of like conceptual, neurotic kind of, you know, like the, that side, you know, and, and she, that, she could definitely chill more. I, like, I admit it. Hi. Uh, as such a multifactorial artist, are there any daily rituals that you engage in for your creative process or to stay grounded and focused? I, I mean, I try to do um, a yoga or swim or walk or bike every day. I get really quickly bored, so I have to kind of like switch it up all the time. I'm sort of trying to make it like a part of my daily routine so it doesn't become like uh, too rigid. I biked for an hour this morning uh, around Brooklyn to, to uh, really loud um, uh, Scissor. I don't know how to pronounce her name. Yeah. I was like, I'm in Brooklyn. Like, it was like, <laughs> it really works well with bicycles. I, it made me a little bit daring though. Like, I, I probably could have had a crash, but, um, but I, I really like biking to music. Like, I, I just put like sometimes my whole phone just on shuffle and just bike. That's, uh, that's probably one of my favorite things to do but in Iceland obviously we are like we I don't, well maybe you don't know about this but we have swimming pools like one in every neighborhood and it's sort of like our cafes or our like social place bathing culture is is pretty massive in a lot of north nordic countries it's kind of where people meet especially during the winter so I try to swim um, is there a routine I mean, sure there is. I mean, obviously my, obviously my daughter goes to school, so I mean, I wake up with her and, you know, like, there's rhythms like that. And I've been blessed, like, my, the best thing for me when they invented the laptop was that I can work at home. So I'm like a real homebody. Like, I, I love doing things at home and, and uh, people come to my house and I really like lunches. Well, we were talking backstage about music docu uh, the terrible music documentaries we watch on Netflix. You said you had just seen the Barbara Streisand documentary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a pretty I, good ritual. I didn't know anything about Barbara Streisand. <laughs> and I was so impressed. She's like, she's like 74. Roses everywhere. 74, like killing it on stage. She's like, Respect. <laughs> I think we have time for maybe one or two more. 
Um, hi, Björk. You are such a prolific, incredible artist, and I wondered if at the beginning of a project or in the midst of it, do you ever face self-doubt, even after like such a long, incredible career? And if so, how do you tackle that? Oh, all the time. Uh, that's why I said earlier, like, you know, once the album is I'm delivered and it's like out, and I, I actually have drunk like five cappuccinos now, so <laughs> I'm like trembling. Um, and I, I'm sort of trying to look at it from the outside, like, and pretend I knew what I was doing, but believe me, I don't. And I actually think it's good to not know, and I think if you just repeat uh, what you did before, it's going to get you into trouble eventually. I mean, you could get away with it for a little bit, but I mean, but like anything, I think stagnation versus like <laughs> the unknown <laughs> is like a riddle you just have to solve every day, you know, like there's not like a one answer to it, you know. Like sometimes it's good just to repeat whatever you're doing for like 10 years and it's cool and sometimes you can only do it for a month. I mean, I think it's just like a feeling, like you know, you know if you're like sort of everything's crystallizing and you're getting like stuck with cobwebs or when it's like everything's really alert and exciting and you know, and then of course uh, sometimes things can, you can tear yourself too much away from things that worked, you know, if it ain't broke, like why fix it? So. I think it's a combination of things and yeah, for sure, like self-doubt all the time. And a lot of ideas, I don't really know, like I have to wait for like a whole year and, and just keep, keep doing it, you know, just, just keep doing it. Yeah. I think we can do maybe one more question. Hi Björk. Okay, so everyone asks you about um, the instruments you use and the themes, but what about the rhythm of your album? Can you explore where you took yourself within that journey? And also, I'm gonna sneak in two questions. Uh, what is your favorite song on Utopia? Yeah, I haven't talked a lot about it tonight, but doing this album, it was one of the strongest uh, relationship and musical collaboration I've ever had uh, with Arca. So, <laughs> so um, you ask me about rhythm, I have to mention him. Uh, it's been so magical and I couldn't say enough about it. And I think with Ulnukura, uh, I kind of wrote my, the album on my own and did the string arrangement and recorded everything. And then he came into the picture afterwards, kind of like making beats into already kind of made songs. And then on this album, when we started, we were like really, really connected. And, and I just wanted to jump off a cliff and just go like, okay, let's see where our coordinates are. And something about when you feel so safe with somebody like that and uh, such an equal and I think maybe it's been played a little bit too much out in the press that he was just like listening to me back in Venezuela as a kid and knew my back catalog by heart. I, I think uh, 
that's just a fraction of what uh, Alejandro is. He's a very, very, if somebody has his own musical DNA, it's, it's him. So I think in the beginning of this album, I was very, I knew it was going to be uh, a conversation with him. And it was kind of like, we've done grief, we've done the serious stuff, where all the melodies and the rhythms and everything lies horizontal on the ground and there's no plants <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> and uh, like, let's do the opposite now. And, uh, and also like, uh, just trying to find, because we are so different, but to find our mutual coordinates, like, like the small section where we overlap. And that was really exciting. And actually, Arisen was the first song where I kind of like uh, found this old, um, from an old uh, mixtape he'd done, this kind of one bar that I looped and, and kind of made it as a surprise to him. Uh, arranged harps and made a structure out of it and sang lyrics. And then I sent it to him. And for me, that was almost like the palette for the album. And maybe I was capturing him, kind of something he does talking about rhythms is he kind of like elevates, you know, there's not like a, like a bass drum doing a boof, boof through the whole thing. It's very like the, the rhythm is glued to the attic and um, there's only occasional anchor that gets uh, squirted down. Definitely that would inspired uh, Utopia a lot. I mean, obviously there are songs like, I would say 60% of this album are done how we did Vulnekura, like songs like Body Memory or, or, or Blissing Me, uh, Utopia, uh, Courtship, Loss, um, all these songs, uh, Tabula Rasa, uh, were done kind of like I, I write the song and I do everything and then he comes into it afterwards and like some strange... Uh, telepathic psychic kind of comes with a with a rhythm we were sort of speaking short at hand at that point i think there was a before and after a little bit in the sense that we were working a lot both we got an airbnb in the in dominican republic and yeah i love i love it <laughs> and so we were kind of like um, went there a few times um, also because it's really cheap to fly there from here <laughs> and um, so and then I went to Iceland like a year ago uh, in the autumn and did all the flute arrangements uh, in one autumn and then in January this year uh, we, we met back here in Brooklyn and I played and I played them for him and sort of told him what I had discovered by trial and error. And he was like, okay, <laughs> like obvious stuff, like flutes are fluffy, okay? <laughs> They're very fluffy. So we need like the opposite. And the beats need to be, because there were some songs we'd already done, like Saint, where the beat is actually quite fluffy. And and we were just we were just DJing for each other, like just hanging around my living room, and going out like in uh, Brooklyn clubs, listening to music and uh, talking and talking and talking and talking about music. And I was like, I think we need to make a beat that's really like almost like 
old retro like rave, but really like light, like like um, not big and boomy. It needs to be and fluffy. It needs to be really sharp and clean and light, and to counter all the fluffiness of the flutes. And then we played uh, each other a lot of stuff, and he, and ended up in some sort of a techno kind of, I would say, maybe uh, Italian <laughs> gay techno. <laughs> with a lack of a better description. And uh, <laughs> say no more. And then um, I just left into the other end of my flat and I, th I was editing some flutes or whatever. And then when I came back to the room a few, few hours later, I landed on the beat to uh, courtship and I just died. That's actually one of my favorite beats on the album. I think it's also something beautiful about what he's so good at, which is he listened to everything I said. He's obviously very much himself, being very much himself, but it had all the, contained all these things. It was like light, sharp, uh, very, very humorous. Oh, I forgot to say that. It had to be slapstick. <laughs> and um, yeah, very slapstick and obviously very Italian gay rave techno and um, that is still I listen to that beat and I could just listen to it on his own and just eat chocolate cake for hours it's like it's ridiculous thank you to Amanda Petrusic thank you ever so much to Bjork thank you This has been Inside Out, a series of podcasts from Pitchfork that explore new perspectives on music, art, and culture. Inside Out is presented by MailChimp. Build your brand. Sell more stuff. This podcast was produced by me, Elia Einhorn, and Mark Yoshizumi, and engineered by Mark Yoshizumi. Additional engineering by Jason Kelly. Our executive producer is Seth Dodson. Thanks to Murmur for hosting the event. 